really what it comes down to is how do we, you know, protect patients who are at their most vulnerable, either medically or just in their life stage of, hey, I'm in the hospital. You know, no one wants to be in the hospital. And it's our job to make sure that they come out healthier than when they came in. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of Let's Talk Solutions, Candid Conversations with Healthcare Leaders. I'm John Amos. And I'm Amy Fritzer. And this week, we're going to be discussing infection prevention and how the COVID-19 pandemic has impacted how hospitals and healthcare facilities fight to reduce hospital-acquired infections, or HAIs, as well as infection prevention's role in keeping patients, staff, and visitors safe. And today we're joined by two very special guests, Irve Trotter, EVS Director at the UC Health University of Colorado Hospital, and Luke Draper, Infection Prevention Specialist for UC Health. Uh, welcome, Irve and Luke. We really appreciate both of you guys being here and bringing your expertise on this important topic. Let's get started. All right, so Irve and Luke, thank you so much for uh, for joining us. Um, I'd like to start just by opening the floor to both of you just to kind of uh, explain some of your background and your experience with infection prevention. And Luke, we can go ahead and start with you. Great, thank you guys so much. I really appreciate the chance to come talk with you guys and you know talk a little bit about infection prevention, which is great. So, uh, so my name is Luke. I've been an infection preventionist at UC Health for about two and a half years. Uh, before that, I've got a, a background in microbiology and public health. And in between that, I also did some work at a vaccine company. So I've been able to kind of hit a couple different you know, sectors related to healthcare and biomedical sciences and that sort of thing. I did my public health degree uh, in hospital and molecular epidemiology, which is about as focused as a master's degree toward infection prevention as you can <laughs> get, uh, which was great. And, you know, was able to start working in infection prevention, and then COVID hit. And now I've kind of been through the rodeo, right, of COVID and everything, and it's been quite an experience, but uh, it's also been really rewarding. So happy to be here. Awesome. So Luke, what did you say you got your degree in again? So my degrees, I've got a, a bachelor's in microbiology and then a master's of public health in hospital and molecular epidemiology. Man, I can barely spell that, let alone pronounce it. That's impressive. <laughs> That's it's awesome. taken me about two years to not trip over it every single time. So I'm like finally to the point where it's not. <laughs> it's like this long on your on your diploma. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's, it's a big one. That's awesome. Cool. Irve, um, how about you? What's your background in infection prevention? I know you've been in EVS for a while, so why don't you dive into that? Yeah, well, just, I just want to say, you know, first off, starting with gratitude. Thank you guys for having me on. Uh, my name is Irve Trotter, um, EVS director here at UC Health. I've been with UC Health now about two and a half years. Um, I started with HHS uh, in December of 2008. So uh, time is definitely flying by. Coming up this December will be 13 years. Um, worked with environmental service uh, within many organizations such as HCA, you know, Tenant, CHS, and now UC Health across some of the states of, you know, Texas, Mississippi, Florida, and Colorado for HHS. So time is flying when you're having fun. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. So, so obviously you guys are right in the thick of things, especially with COVID and, and, um, you know, we all know that hospital acquired infections or HAIs is they're called in the industry or major safety concern. Um, when you say HAIs, most people go, well, I don't really know what that means. What exactly does that mean? Yeah. So HAI is, it's kind of an umbrella term. Uh, it's something that the CDC uses to define something that a patient didn't come in with 
and then they get to the hospital, they pick up some variety of infection. And there's a whole bunch of subcategories that part of my job and part of the team that I work in's job, we look at cases, we determine if they meet the criteria for those different types of HAIs, and then we put in interventions based on that to see what we can prevent. So there's a couple main types of HAIs, the, you know, in no particular order, uh, you've got SSI, which is a surgical site infection. You've got CAUTI, which is catheter-associated urinary tract infection. You've got CLABSI, which is central line-associated bloodstream infection. And then you've got uh, C. diff, which is uh, a spore-forming bacteria that causes diarrhea. Where would that come from? So C. diff is, like you said, it's spore-forming, which means it creates this hard coat around the bacterium, and it makes it really, really, really hard to kill. And so maybe you have a patient who picked up C. diff, you know, it does exist in the community, but maybe they picked it up, came into the hospital, they're having diarrhea. And the C. diff is spread in that diarrhea, and then it gets into the environment, it gets onto healthcare worker hands, and can potentially spread from person to person. So it's that that's one of the metrics that I do a lot of work in. And I can tell you it's it's hard to prevent, you know, C. diff is, is really good at not getting killed, and Mm. getting to the next person. So in terms of monitoring um, and providing like hospital surveillance of that, what does that look like within the hospital setting? So most hospitals use uh, what's called an EMR, which is electronic medical record. And so at our hospital, we have Epic, which is you know one of the big ones. And it's, it's a software that we use that has all the information in the hospital is in that. And so a patient, right, is going to have their medical record. It's going to have all of their tests. It's going to have all of their um, different like labs, uh, notes that providers put in about them, the monitoring that's done. So you can, you can get the full picture of a patient in that medical record. And the big, like, the big useful component is we can then use all of those labs that get aggregated into reports. So you know, every C. diff test goes on to a report that says, here's all the C. diff tests. And then part of my job is going in, reviewing those, kind of determining what is going to happen with that case. Uh, or let's say someone has a bloodstream infection, Epic is going to tell us, hey, this patient had a blood culture, take a look, see if it's a clapsy. And then we it'll feed us all these cases to go look in. So it's a really, really powerful tool. And we have a whole swarm of people whose whole job is to improve and work with Epic to make it you know, serve our needs and serve the needs of like frontline providers and all that stuff. So it's it's really powerful and a great way for us to to monitor everything that goes on in the hospital. So then switching gears, I mean, Irve, obviously you oversee the EVS department for UC Health and working, I would imagine, hand in hand with, you know, Luke's team and, and the infection prevention team. And what what is, how does EVS play a role in preventing the spread of HAIs or containing them? Or, um, you know, are there protocols that you guys follow? Are there certain cleaning procedures that you guys utilize? Yeah, so just just partnering with infection prevention. I know Luke's team every morning we get generated emails of patients in the hospital that may have C. diff, that may have CRE, or any other known you know diagnosis where housekeeping can play a part um, in doing certain cleaning practices and standards uh, within those rooms. So you know just having that generated email, being able to present that to our staff on the front end prior to them starting their shift. Um, helps them to be better prepared. You know, our team needs to know um, what type of isolation rooms are out there, uh, what chemical to use, the dwell time, being able to speak to it, 
Um, and they're just more confident going into patient rooms, um, being able to treat, you know, different surfaces. Um, and it makes everyone feel at ease from staff to patients, um, as well. Hmm. So, um, I'm wondering, you know, obviously COVID is still, uh, very prominent and, um, you know, we've had, I don't know what number wave we're on right now, but we've had several different waves of it and different, you know, states across the country, but in terms of, um, you know, what it's like to operate under the conditions that COVID creates within the hospital, how does that impact uh, kind of your approach to HAIs? Obviously COVID is an isolation room. Does that impact like how many isolation rooms are available for, for patients that may have an HAI or how does, what is it like, uh, fighting HAIs and reducing those in this kind of environment? You know, it's, I, I feel like at this point we've kind of reached in, at least on my team, we've reached an equilibrium, right? Where we've been doing all of our COVID stuff for so long that it's just part of our daily routine. Um, and obviously that's, that's different for frontline providers. You know, like when you guys, uh, I know last season you talked with Vince and Bill, right? About mm -hmm. the PTSD from COVID and the burnout and just how hard it is for people to, you know, see COVID patients every day and kind of go through this, um, so that, that does, that obviously makes it difficult, right? If people are really tired, there's, they maybe would forget to do hand hygiene or, Hey, I, you know, I don't know if I have time to give the maximum care. I kind of need to do what I can to get to each patient, which makes it tough. Um, but I mean, around isolation rooms, you know, we did a lot of retrofitting with our facilities team to say, Hey, let's provide as many negative air pressure rooms as possible because, you know, that was early in the pandemic and there was still kind of discussion going back and forth of, is this a droplet spread? Is this aerosol generated spread? And so we needed to get as many isolation rooms as possible. And so there's, there's been a, there's been so much work done by so many different people. Um, which is, I think on one thing it's, it's cool to see, you know, a hospital system work the way it's intended to, where we have so many different people doing so many different things and everyone is out here killing it at their job and, you know, working at the top of scope. And so that's, that's been cool, but it's, it definitely has been, it's been difficult. It's, it's a lot of work. It's kind of been the, I have people say a lot like, Oh, you're, this is the Olympics for you now for just two straight years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? just, yeah. Or, you know, I joke before this, nobody had any idea what my job was. I'd always have to try to explain what is an infection preventionist, what is epidemiology. And now everybody knows both of those, uh, which is, you know, it's different. <laughs> yeah. And, and from an EVS perspective, you know, there were many changes from the beginning, you know, just taking COVID as an example where, you know, only clinicians were allowed to enter rooms. Then all of a sudden, you know, housekeeping was able to now go in because we've gotten new standards from the CDC that, hey, we're able to help out. We're able to go in. We're able to clean those rooms. Um, it got to a point, you know, where I think with with COVID, the average length of stay was around eight days. And then you can't go with a, a housekeeper not entering a patient's room for eight days. And now that, you know, we have the proper PPE, uh, Luke's team helping educate our staff on proper donning and doffing. And, hey, it's OK. You know, if you have your proper N95 mask and your PPE, you will be safe. Um, so it, you know, we owe it to those patients that were in there during that time that, hey, you'll still see your housekeeper because we're in a time now where you're going to always have COVID patients. There will be those units where we're kind of working through it. Yeah. Are there tools that like Irve, you and your team use specifically to, you know, test for those in pa for HAIs in patient rooms or are there specific procedures that you use or uh, maybe it's a separate machine that you can use that helps to clean patient rooms or clean ancillary areas or, you know, 
you know, clinical areas where bacteria or infection, you know, might be at a higher level? So, so currently we use ATP testing and ATP stands for adenosine triphosphate. Um, it's measuring the growth soil on surfaces within patient rooms. Um, this is something we typically start with an education of in orientation with education with our staff. Um, we'll have them grab the ATP monitor. They'll be able to swab door handles, uh, the mouse that they're using, even their cell phones in orientation, letting them know that when you're cleaning patient rooms, there's contact items such as overbed tables, um, bed rails, um, door handles, toilet handles that'll be swabbed in the rooms to ensure they're at a safe level. Um, this will help control HAIs within an environmental service standpoint. So we're not spreading germs to other patients. Um, as team members are cleaning, they'll notice that there's things they just can't see. So I think, you know, using the ATP monitor is a second line of defense um, to help sure that we're not spreading germs to patients that may come in the hospital. So I know that in addition to ATP testing, um, there's other, I think, tools that, um, you know, I've heard just um, just around in the industry being used, uh, whether it's electrostatic sprayers or uh, something like that. Are there any other tools that you're using that assist in um, kind of infection prevention efforts? Uh, yes. Currently, we use our Clorox T360 machine. Um, okay. This is a electrostatic shock that um, it's a quaternary disinfectant that has a, it's a, a negative shock into a positive environment. You know, any, anybody knows that when you have negative and positive, that's the only way you can get things to kind of stick on. Um, but we use this within our waiting areas and high traffic areas uh, to ensure that surfaces are safe for patients. You know, while staff is cleaning, I always think to myself that no one's perfect. You know, we, we you know, you, you may not wipe anything. You may get distracted. And just knowing that you have a second line of defense where someone's coming through spraying waiting areas nightly, uh, high traffic areas, um, that'll just ensure that surfaces are safe. Yeah. And I know you were obviously shooting for true cleanliness, you know, actual disinfection. But in terms of also just the reassurance that you can give staff and patients, does that, you know, is, is there something you're doing to let staff know that you're using this, that you're doing this extra measure or let patients know? How does that impact kind of perception and then just the reassurance that, hey, we're working and healing in a safe environment? Yeah. So within our waiting areas today, you know, we have robust rounding of obviously police texts, but there are signage to say, hey, this area has been disinfected. You know, patients today walking in a hospital in this climate are expecting a sterile environment. So when you see rounding by police techs, wiping things down, disinfecting, um, we've even gone to the point now where you'll see, you know, furniture being labeled, hey, this has been sanitized. You know, in the past, this is something that wasn't there. Um, you just always assume that, hey, someone cleaned it, but now people want to, you know, see the words uh, written on the furniture. And if it's been used, you'll kind of flip the sign over to say, hey, the seat's dirty and someone will move on to the next area. Um, but having that that reassurance that signage is there, someone's rounding, um, letting them know what what process has been taking place um, is, is definitely helpful. Um, people that come in the hospital, I'm reminded as we, you know, visit patients, you know, managers are rounding within patient areas, just assuring them that, you know, the room is being disinfected. You will have services completed for the day. Um, I'm always reminded where, you know, a patient came in, they're saying, hey, my sibling was, you know, had surgery about two years ago. I know this is my first time here. Um, they had an HAI um, with a total knee. You know, I didn't actually want services because I didn't really want 
you know, someone to come into my room uh, to minimize that. But uh, I asked for you to kind of come up here and talk to me. So just as a manager going and explaining why we're wiping contact items, why it's helpful to visit patient rooms because nurses are in and out. I want to make sure I'm disinfecting that light switch or I'm wiping handles because so many visitors come in and out and knowing that, you know, we can play our part in disinfecting those high touch areas. Um, the patient was safe. They, they were they were actually glad I came by um, just to talk about our services and why we were needed. Um, and no better time now than having housekeeping services. Yeah, no kidding. No, that's great. Irvay, you mentioned police techs. Can you explain what those are and their role in infection prevention? Yeah, so you think of the word police techs or you have someone that's cleaning, but there's a police tech who actually floats around the hospital and their whole role is to maintain an area. So at night, areas are cleaned from top to bottom, they're detailed, but a police tech, you know, may not have that time in a facility that sees, you know, 300 patients a day in an ED lobby or 5,000 patients a day within our outpatient area. So their job is to maintain the environment from a stocking standpoint to a disinfection standpoint of someone's leaving a waiting area to be able to keep it straightened up from a furniture, um, picking up debris, you know, cleaning glass, cleaning high touch items and disinfecting. But they're, they're just to be out there to be visible. Something as simple as a spill, they're there to respond quickly because it's, it's high traffic. It's the entrance door of the hospital or a waiting area that's extremely busy throughout the day, but there's someone just there constantly monitoring rounding around the clock. I mean, it sounds like you have quite a robust program and probably some pretty robust policies and procedures that you're following there and which kind of naturally goes into the um, thought. And Luke, I would imagine this is more for you being the infection guy, but I would think that the recommendation would be, or the hope would be that most hospital systems, larger facilities, even smaller facilities would have some kind of an infection prevention plan or policy in place, maybe even a team that manages it, a team such as yours. So if if they don't, I mean, obviously, I think the last year has shown that it's probably more important than ever, right? Um, just a renewed focus on it. So if you're putting together a program, an infection prevention program, what are some of the components or maybe the most important components that should, and like the teams or the folks, you know, the team leaders that should be involved? Yeah, we have what's called our uh, infection control plan, right? And so it's it, it has a variety of different things in it. We have the different types of isolations that we use. That's one of the infection prevention bread and butter, right? Is, and now it's something everyone is more familiar with, right? Of aerosol transmission, droplet transmission. Um, there's also a lot of what, what we call fomites, which is a, a physical object that can transfer a bacteria or a virus to the next patient. So we want to make sure that we have plans in place to monitor what's going on in those, that cleaning is done correctly, uh, that our surveillance for the HAIs is done right. Um, there's plenty of organisms that we do surveillance for that don't actually cause HAIs, like tuberculosis, or um, we have acinetobacter or serratia. These are organisms that can cause serious infections in patients, and even if they're not classified by CDC as an HAI, we still want to make sure that we know what's going on with them. So our infection prevention plan really covers, you know, the bases of surveillance definitions, rounding all of this stuff. Like there's, there's a lot of different things. Um, 
So another piece that we use is uh, what's called tracer methodology, which is something that was created by the Joint Commission, which is our hospital um, accreditation board. And so what we do on a tracer is we will go out with a set group of questions and survey that. And so we'll look at the unit and say, are you doing this? Or are you not doing this? So some examples are going to be, are you storing clean and dirty things together or separately? Do you have items that are labeled with the correct expiration date? You know, do you have linen that's covered and put away? And so we can take all these questions that, you know, by themselves are kind of a one-off little thing and combine that into how well is this unit reaching up to our infection prevention expectations? And then also above that are regulatory standards. And so you can take all those questions, you can aggregate them into a, a report of, hey, we're at 80% compliance. Um, and this gives us a really good way to track where units are at and how we're going to fare during uh, surveys or accreditation events. It's really what it comes down to is how do we you know, protect patients who are at their most vulnerable, either medically or just in their life stage of, hey, I'm in the hospital. You know, No one wants to be in the hospital. And it's our job to make sure that they come out healthier than when they came in. Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of curious too, in terms of, you know, you have this infection uh, control plan that you have and, you know, I think it's clear that a successful, you know, execution of that plan requires collaboration between every department and every team at the hospital. What does it look like um, to partner with each department? Obviously you're partnering with EVS, you know, with Irve there, um, but then also nursing and then other departments. How do you kind of build um, that collaboration and really have like a, a culture between, you know, from everybody at the hospital that this is something we're proactively doing every day. And it's not just EVS responsibility. It's not just infection prevention's responsibility. It's ev it's all of our responsibility to make sure we're fighting this. How do you kind of take something that's a formal policy and plan and, and get that through to, hey, this is something we're doing every day? Yeah. What you said of, you know, it's, it's everybody's issue. Uh, that's, that's actually part of our, our you know, a, about a year or so ago, our team went through and made it, uh, like a, a team motto or, you know, some, whatever you want to call it. And one of those pieces was we make infection prevention, everyone's business. Um, and there's, there's some formal and informal ways we do that. Formal is we have what's called the infection control committee, which is a, um, every other month committee that meets and we go over, the HAIs, we go over departmental issues, and it has people from all across the whole hospital. So we have lab, we've got uh, facilities, we've got food and nutrition, we've got radiology, we've got nursing, we've got frontline providers. Um, so it's really, we, we have that like official, everybody is involved. And the infection control plan actually goes through that as, you know, is being reviewed. We look at our goals that we set for each year. We look at that. Um, and so we really want to make sure that there's an active role that all these departments are playing officially. Unofficially, you know, infection prevention, I think, functions um, kind of in a consulting role, right, where I'm not giving direct patient care. But so, you know, so a patient isn't really my customer as much as the nurse or doctor or department serving them is coming to me with questions. They're coming to me with, hey, can you clarify this? Can you walk me through this process? Um and so we really try to, you know, my medical director told me about the, the three A's of consulting, right, which is um, being affable, able, and available. And so we really want to make sure that we are 
someone who people want to go to and say, hey, we're comfortable asking this. They might feel it's a dumb question, you know, but when it when it's something that's medical, it's never really a dumb question because anything that they get wrong can be a big problem. So we want to make sure people are comfortable coming to us. Um, and we want to make sure that we partner with facilities to say, hey, you know, like with the air handler stuff uh, that I was talking about earlier of creating negative pressure, we wanted to make sure that they're able to do it before we ask. Um, and then that they're able to monitor that and make sure that it's an effective, like, hey, we're not going to break all of the hospital air systems by doing this. Um, so it's, you know, it's building relationships. And I think recognizing that we're here to serve people who are giving care, or we're here to serve people who are um, like the EVS team, even who's, you know, cleaning rooms. And so it's, I'm, I'm not the one going in and cleaning rooms, but I want to make sure that they're comfortable and safe and prepared to go in and clean those effectively. Yeah. Irve, do you have any thoughts on how your team has specifically collaborated with other, other departments? Yeah. One thing uh, Luke and I team currently does is our collaborative rounds. So we have biweekly collaborative rounds with nursing and a IP representative is tagging along as well. So we always think of who cleans what, you know, a lot of time you have a regulatory agency coming, it's last minute you're like, hey, I'm not responsible for that. And I think we just have clear lines on who's doing what because we're rounding biweekly. Um, we're looking at things on that can be improved. Um, talking with our team members, they're understanding dual times of chemicals on how we can improve the unit. So I, I feel like just that open line of communication uh, week in and week out um, definitely you know, plays a part. And I would imagine a huge part of all this, the whole policy and procedures and program and all that is just ongoing education. I mean, you'd have to be collaborative on that too, right? Across all the different departments throughout the facility, whether it's clinical or non-clinical or... So, I mean, do you, Luke, do, does your team kind of manage that as well? Or Irve, does your team kind of manage that? Or do you kind of work together on that? And how often do you guys, is it when you guys meet, you know, every other month in your committees, do you guys talk about, hey, let's uh, focus on this issue this time with the, with the whole hospital? Or how do you kind of approach that? I think one thing that COVID has really highlighted is how difficult it is to change policies and practices, right? So that was that's one thing we've dealt with a lot is, hey, when we ran out of our normal cleaning wipes in you know March, April, May of last year, okay, now we're switching to bleach everywhere. So now we have to educate everyone on how to use raw bleach, how to you know mix it safely, and how to use it because it has a different dwell time than bleach with in a wipe. So there really is, um, there's just a constant need to be on top of our education. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's very important. And we are fortunate that we share um, education duties with a lot of different groups. So um, EVS does a lot of their own education. We do a lot of education. There are uh, nurse educators whose entire job is to, you know, educate nurses and make sure that they're able to speak that language really well. Um, so our team does, we, we do sit kind of in the, in the inner circle of education and we do want to make sure that we're providing it correctly. Um, but we're fortunate to be able to partner with other people who also share that responsibility. I know, I know you touched on this uh, earlier, Hervé, but is, is there anything that, that you coach your team on, on how to communicate to patients, help them feel safe? Um, and then if a patient has a concern, how your team kind of addresses that? Yeah. So you know, our housekeeper that goes in the room is going to see the patient the most. Um, first, we won't want to identify if the patient is there or not and explain those services that are in the room. 
Um, knowing that we use five racks, you know, there's a proper protocol that you'll clean the bathroom last and the room first, letting the patient know what the rags are used for within the specific zones within the room. And just kind of talking through your cleaning process to ensure that there's assurances there that, hey, I won't be mixing or I won't be double dipping my rags, you know, while I'm in the room because patients are in the bed and they're watching, you know, they want to, you know, hear those sounds that the toilet's flushing, that the sink's running, that you're flickering the lights, um, that they they smell, the smell of clean um, is even a trigger that's in the room. Um, But just kind of talking through the process um, and that, that communication, I think, is huge. Because patients, they don't know what you're doing. You know, why are you wiping that? Um, that all kind of plays a part um, in the education process. Um, our staff is also, they alert us if someone's not in the room. You'll, you'll have a sorry, I miss you card that's left there. And a patient thinking like, wow, you know, that the housekeepers get my room. And they'll leave that card and they'll alert their manager and say, hey, you know, Mr. or Mrs. Jones was out of the room. Um, you should go by and see them and let them know that I did come by and recognize that what the tent cart was actually on the table and that they were satisfied with the services. And since the housekeeper wasn't there to explain the services, the manager can kind of go through and reassure that those services were completed. I can assure you that, you know, while you were getting an x-ray or down for surgery, that we didn't skip your room. I, I think that's huge because if you miss that moment with the patient, um, that, that can mean everything um, during their stay. Cool. Well, yeah, I think, um, the education of both, you know, staff, um, is really important. And also just communicating to, to patients is also really important, but I kind of want to switch gears and, and dive into kind of the specific partnership IP and EVS has, and, um, how that kind of fleshes itself out and kind of the daily cleaning protocols and things that you do and your team does, Irvay. Yeah. So a part of the cleaning protocols is when a team member gets to the floor, um, they're able to round their unit to identify the type of patients that they have. Um, they're looking at signage. If there's reverse isolation, we obviously want to clean those rooms first uh, to make sure that that patient's not compromised. Uh, we'll, we'll also clean our patients who are not in isolation. We'll take care of those to provide our services. And then we're letting our staff know to clean our isolation rooms last. Um, to ensure that we're not spreading germs on the floors. In terms of with um, COVID and how those protocols have developed, obviously, and um, kind of evolved since the beginning of COVID, Luke, how has your team been involved in kind of tracking that, seeing what works, providing guidance maybe on on how they can implement some other best practices? How has that kind of been over the last 18 plus months? Yeah. So isolation precautions, you know, if you want to kind of get down into the the nitty gritty, it's based on uh, transmission based precautions. So what we do is we look at all the research that's been done in the field and say, how does this organism transmit from one to the next? Because something like flu, right, that's a droplet transmission is going to be totally different from uh, like pseudomonas, which is going to get on a surface. It might get in a drain and gets to the next patient. So you have to understand what type of precautions a patient is on to really understand what type of cleaning they have to do. Uh, so COVID, you know, in particular was, I think the, the biggest thing at the beginning was droplet versus airborne. Um, but we also ran into stuff like, Hey, is, do I need to wear a hairnet because people were concerned that COVID would get in your hair or do I need to change hospital scrubs? Um, because they were concerned that it was going to get in the, uh, the cloth of the clothing and get to the next patient. Um, so that's that's the biggest challenge of having a, a novel organism that 
comes out is we don't have this wealth of information and wealth of data as to how to combat and clean it. And so we have to kind of say, all right, let's ratchet this up as far as we can. And we need to make sure that we're safe first and, and then kind of work back from there. So fortunately, you know, coronaviruses are not particularly hardy, you know, as it compared to like C. diff. So we don't have to use bleach. Um, but then when we ran out of cleaner that would kill it, we did have to use bleach. And so there's, there's kind of this back and forth between what do we think is going to kill the organism? What do we know is going to kill the organism? What do we actually have on hand? Um, and, and fortunately there's, you know, the transmission based precautions gives us a framework to start with, and then we can adjust based on, um, the needs for that specific situation. So, um, so Luke, uh, obviously the last year has been pretty crazy for you guys and having a novel coronavirus. Um, so when you were going through your training and your education in your multiple degrees, you know, did you ever train for something like that? Did you, I'm, did you guys ever discuss, Hey, you know, we might have some new organisms come, come across and how would we handle that? I'd say yes and no. Um, so did I expect that we were going to have like a once in a 100 year outbreak, uh, <laughs> six months into my career? No. Um, but you know, when we, one thing that's, I think great about public health and one of the reasons why it's, um, being recognized a lot in hospitals and being used a lot in hospitals is the, the modeling and like statistical ability that our field has to kind of say, Hey, here's maybe what's going to happen. Um, and so if you look at like major respiratory outbreaks that have happened in the last 40 years, round numbers, you know, there's been about one every 10 years, whether it's flu or SARS, um, you know, we've seen them with a somewhat cyclical pattern. Obviously we can't predict like, Hey, okay, 2030, there's going to be another one, but you know, we're not going to be surprised if there's, when there's another, you know, big respiratory outbreak. So I think, I think people in public health maybe weren't surprised that something was going to happen, but I don't think any of us really, you know, knew about the scale that we were going to hit. Um, I've got a very specific memory about, I think it was probably late February of 2020. Um, I got called into a, a meeting with uh, a, a group of providers and they were like, hey, um, do we need to be worried about this? And this is when COVID was just kind of blowing up in China. It hadn't hit the US at all. And I remember talking to them and saying, hey, you know, we have seen this type of thing before with bird flu and swine flu and SARS. So this isn't like totally crazy. Um, it's not here yet. You know, it might be, we'll kind of have to see what it looks like. There's obviously different levels of uh, population density. There's different levels of food practices that do play a role into how viruses move in this inside countries. Um, but I very specifically remember being kind of like, yeah, we'll see, we'll see what happens, you know? And then fast forward two months later, all of the alarms are going off. We're out of products. Everyone's, you know, losing their minds. It was kind of like, oh boy, this was not, this is not what we expected at you all. You became the um, most popular guy in the room. <laughs> <laughs> they were, you know, I fortunately, I think we were very lucky to have a really, a really deep um, pool of experience to draw on with our medical directors. Um, and so we, we really had some really, really great people working to try to figure out, okay, what do we do tomorrow? You know, because we, we know what's going on today and we don't know what's going on tomorrow. Um, so, so I don't know. I think being it, proactive versus yeah. reactive yeah. type of approach. Yeah, definitely. 
So I was surprised as much as anybody else. Um, <laughs> but, you know, fortunately we did, you know, you do go into things like transmission precautions and how do you prepare a hospital to get a, you know, a huge influx of patients. Um, so that's, I think our hospital has been very fortunate and very well led to be able to, you know, we, we didn't hit that situation that people did in New York where they were running out of beds and running out of ventilators. You know, there's, there's a lot of things that play into it, but I think I'm, I'm very happy with and very pleased with how our hospital has handled it. And Nerva, you've been around for a long time. I mean, you've been a director for 13 years. I mean, did you ever anticipate this or when you first found out you were just like, uh Oh, what do we do now? Type of thing. Yeah. You know, when it first happened, you almost didn't believe it. You're like, ah, this is, this isn't really much. Um, I'm sure this will go away. It's, it's a hot topic that'll last for maybe a, a month or two. Um, but it, it's still here today. You know, we're looking at over a year and a half where, um, you just didn't expect something like this. Um, but I will tell you, um, housekeeping is definitely important nowadays. Where, where everyone said no, they now say yes. Please come in my area. Um, can you disinfect? Uh, we'll give you whatever time you need. Um, it's just, it's a culture of yes now. Hmm. I am curious in terms of how this changes, not only just like standard procedures and protocols that you have, you know, how COVID has impacted that, and then also just contingency plans and preparation. Like what's the impact COVID's going to have even after it's, you know, hopefully gone. Um, yeah. What's that kind of impact going to be? Do you guys think within the hospital specifically? I think the, I think COVID has in some ways been there, there, you know, there's some silver linings. There have been some good that's come out of it. Um, like the, our hospital stood up and took down and stood up some incident command centers, um, which really gave those folks involved experience and saying, Hey, let's, Here's what we do. We're going to set up this command center. We're going to answer questions. We're going to get stuff done. And now being able to look back on that and say, hey, here's some things that we learned that worked. Here's some things that we learned that didn't work. And it's really given us, you know, kind of the ultimate testing ground to say, do we know how to respond to this? You know, can we flex our system to its breaking point and then come back stronger? I think the good from an environmental service standpoint that came out of this is, you know, things that are the second line of defense, you know, we talked about ATP, you know, we talked about Clorox T360. There are some facilities that use the UV lighting. Um, we have our BioQuil machine that's a, a hydrogen peroxide spray. Um, that's within a lot of our terminal cleans where facilities were on the fence at some point uh, and spending money. I think now that's more so available because they know that um, it's, it's creating a cleaner environment um, for our patients. Yeah. Is there, um, is there any worry from either of you guys, um, in terms of, you know, human nature drifting back to status quo and how do you hold on to some of the silver linings, like you said, Luke, and how do you keep those going forward and not let it kind of drift back? You know, hopefully one day, co you know, COVID's gone and we're past it, but yet how do you keep, you know, moving forward with some of the things we've learned and not let us drift back to maybe some bad habits? I think that's absolutely a potential you know, the, I think human nature is to have a short memory and fortunately policies and things that are written don't have to have a memory. It's just set in stone. So I think taking the opportunity we have to say, Hey, here's, you know, here's what we do for maybe it's travel screening or, you know, maybe next respiratory season, we have people who get screened for symptoms instead of just letting people 
got to run willy nilly in a hospital during flu season um, that, you know, people maybe will be more used to that. That's it, it kind of reminds me of our of the visitor restrictions that we have that in place. Uh, so like during during flu season in past years, we would have visitor restrictions on some of our heavily immunocompromised units um, like bone marrow transplant or solid organ transplant. And having those visitor restrictions, you know, is to is to really protect the patients who are there. And so while, you know, a couple of years from now, people may forget about that. If we can put in policies in place that say, hey, we're going to do this for everybody during flu season, you know, something like that. Or, hey, we're going to have temperature screening or symptom screening for anyone coming into the hospital. I think we can I think we do have the opportunity to learn from this and really improve our practices in kind of those minor ways, you know, that are doesn't have to be everyone wears a mask all the time. You know, that that'll go away at some point. Um, but I do think we have the opportunity to learn, um, and move from there. Yeah. I guess it kind of mirrors, you know, I mean, obviously when nine 11 happened, you know, that changed airport security forever. Right. And so I, you know, I think maybe there'll be a similar effect, um, you know, in the hospital the infection prevention thought. too. Yeah. I was um, just going to say that. <laughs> I am curious though, bringing up, um, like visitor restrictions and just, you know, ha- when you think about patient care, and, um, you know, the impact that having a loved one visit can have on healing and recovery, right? Like how do you balance staying true to the infection prevention measures you need to have while also accommodating some of those maybe emotional needs that, that patients may have? How does that work exactly? One of the, I think one of the big tasks that we're given as infection preventionists is to balance the risk of an infection or risk of exposure versus risk of, you know, whatever thing you're putting in place. So visitor restrictions have been a, a tough thing to work with this year. I mean, even just, just recently we've changed ours to, to walk our restrictions forward a little bit, make them a bit more restrictive because we're seeing higher rates of COVID in the community. Um, and you know, I've heard stories of patients who said, Hey, I came in on the day that you changed the restrictions. And if I have known, I would have gone to this other place. Um, and that's, you know, it's, that's tough to hear. It's really hard to hear the impact that it has on people. Cause I think we cannot, we can't downplay the, like you said, the emotional effect that it can have seeing your loved ones or getting that family support during potentially the hardest time of this patient's life. So, you know, so it's on us to balance. Okay. If we have people coming in who might have COVID and they're giving COVID to maybe the patient that they're coming to see or giving it to some person they pass in the hallway, like that's, that's a risk that we have to balance. And so we, we do our best to say, Hey, maybe for these patients, you get one patient or you get one visitor a day for one hour, or for these patients, you get two visitors a day for two hours. Um, and so we kind of make, we, we try to set up categories of you know, an end of life situation is going to be different from a person who came in for a broken leg, which is going to be different from, you know, a mom coming in to have her baby. So we just try to put in place clear policies so that our frontline staff are able to rely on that and look back and say, I really understand that this is tough for you to hear. I really understand that, you know, you want to have your whole family here, but just out of uh, you know, out of an abundance of safety and wanting to protect you and the other people in the hospital, we're going to limit you to one visitor a day or two visitors. Yeah. Herve, is that something that your team is aware of and that you're actually coaching them? Hey, 
visitors, you know, they're not getting as many visitors. That's a, that's a need that obviously we can't fill completely, but we can kind of be that emotional kind of connection for, for some patients that are here. Is that something you talk to your team about? Yes. Um, we have that conversation all the time because, you know, when visitor restrictions hit, you know, we kind of play our part in going in the room, you know, putting a smile on the patient's face. Um, we're the only ones that, you know, or one of the few that comes in for something that's not, you know, touching the patient, moving the patient, uh, poking the patient, but we can go in there to have a conversation uh, while we're in there completing our job. And, and I think that's, that's huge. Um, just to be able to put a smile on someone's face, uh, ask them how they're doing, especially you, you get to know the patient if you've cleaned their room several days in a row. Um, you get to know them by name. They know you by name. They're saying, hi, Irve, you know, good to see you again. You know, glad you're here. You know, and that that's that's huge. That's huge in building that relationship, especially when their family can't make it or they're they're talking to them through an iPad or just over the phone. Um, but, you know, just like you build a relationship with your nurse. Um, you're also doing that with the housekeeping staff as well. Yeah, it sounds like you both are either the goat or the goat. <laughs> so you're, the, <laughs> you're either the favorite person or you're the, you know, or in your case, Luke, having to, that balance can't be easy, especially when we talk about human nature and like you said, vulnerability and patients, you know, being by themselves. And that certainly inhib, you know, inhibits their healing as well. And so I don't, uh, I think you both have been in a very tough position I would think now that it's been so long that there's probably more of a better understanding from, you know, families and, and things like that. I mean, I last summer when my mother was in the hospital, they she was at end of life. So they we were able to go in and be there. But had she not been, because in the room, like two rooms down from her, was someone who was a COVID patient and their family was not allowed in. And I specifically remember, I don't know if it was a spouse or a brother how the relation was to the patient, but was talking to the staff about, well, why can't I go in? Why can't my family come in and see her? And, you know, I was kind of with an earshot and they knew the situation with my mom. So I was wondering, well, maybe that's why the staff didn't say, well, because she's dying. <laughs> and so, you know, it was at that point, they let us in. Um, but I, I, I mean, I totally believe that it's a real, real thing. And that had to be really tough to, to deal with. And manage. Yeah, it's. I think one of the one of the really important kind of you know, transitions or mindsets that we have to have as infection preventionists or really any kind of healthcare provider is to see patients as not just a number, you know, not just their medical record number or fifty six year old male with heart disease. You know, like there's there's a whole person behind there, and there's a whole family that cares about them. And I think you know it's it's obviously something that we've that we know about, but COVID has really brought that to the front. Um, you know, and it, it, it makes it tough. It makes it really hard to have those conversations. And so we just have to come in with a, you know, a, a sense of understanding and try to be compassionate and really say, Hey, I understand. And I, I want to explain to you why this is, you know, for safety of either your loved one or someone else's loved one. Yeah. Luke, I'm curious if you've seen, um, there was a uh, report that came out, I guess it was a press release by the Society for Healthcare Epidemiology in America, SHEA, um, that it, it looks like there's been increases in HAIs in 2020 from 2019. Did you see that report? Yes, I'm very familiar with those. Um, 
and it, you know, there's, I think there's going to be a lot of research that comes out in the next couple of years as to what was behind that. You know, I think we have a lot of anecdotal reasons, you know, of staff are busier or you have people who were, there was using a lot more antibiotics. So antibiotic resistant infections cropped up more, or you have people who are ventilated for a lot more. That's, I mean, that's one that I don't think we need any research for, you know, to know, Hey, if we have all these ventilated patients who are not doing well, um, there's, there's another subset of HAI called VAE, which is ventilator associated event. And we saw a definite upcropping in those because you have way more people using a ventilator. So I think there's, that's a really complex issue. Um, it's one that I, you know, with C. diff specifically, I've been digging into for a year and a half and I'm still digging. So, you know, there's healthcare is complex, it's busy, it's messy. And as much as we don't want it to be those things, you know, and as much as that's kind of our job to make things clean and simple, um, it's messy and COVID made it a little messier. And I think we, you know, we're now in the position of saying, Hey, how can we, you know, next time we have flu season or next time we have a staffing crisis, like how do we make sure that our hand hygiene and our cleaning and our other basic infection prevention stuff doesn't get compromised. Yeah, that's great. If there anything that, uh, you know, kind of the key takeaways that you guys would say to like, you know, administrator or someone that would be listening would be what would be the most important thing to remember when it comes to, you know, HAIs or infection prevention? Yeah, I think just, you know, working with IP, being transparent. If there's, you know, like Luke said earlier, no questions, a dumb question uh, when it relates to healthcare. But if there's something that as an EVS leader uh, that you want to recommend, as a second line of defense, whether it's ATP, Clorox T360, uh, UV lighting, I, I say you should bring it to your administrator or leader's attention, and but bring the facts behind it. You know, what, what are the reasons why we should have it? Um, you know, how can this improve your numbers uh, with HAI, especially with patients, what one in five, what come in hospitals that can contract an HAI? You know, so when, it, when, it, when you think about the reason why behind it, I think, you know, just asking those questions, partnering, um, sitting down during your infection prevention committee meetings and just just hash it out. I think that's that's really going to be what's best. So my my ending plugs are going to be one: wash your hands. Um, two: if you're in the hospital and you see somebody not washing their hands, tell them to wash their hands. Uh, that's I think it. You know, really as as a patient, I think that's important to advocate for. You know help patients feel empowered to advocate for themselves and say, Hey, I didn't see you wash your hands before you're coming in to access my line. Can you wash your hands, please? Um, so I think that's, that's, that's one plug. Uh, second plug is I think there is a lot of value in infection prevention. There's a lot of value in the, the abilities that we have with data and the abilities we have to, you know, with all the products to, to make strides in preventing infections. You know, we, we always want to shoot for zero infections. We always want to shoot for, you know, like a the a SIR, which is standardized infection ratio of zero, which is, hey, we did not have any infections. Um, and obviously that's a very lofty goal. You know, some people might say not achievable, not, you know, but that's that's what we want to shoot for. And I think the I think COVID has really highlighted the value that infection prevention brings Um the, the strength that a good infection prevention program can have and can really say, hey, we can prevent infections. And it we don't have to be at the mercy of bacterial evolution, right? We don't have to be at the mercy of these things that we can't see. We can make changes in behavior and cleaning 
and really, really make a difference in people's lives. That's awesome. Yeah, well, awesome. Luke, it's it's been awesome to have you on, Irve. I know um, we've talked several times over the last um, eighteen plus months, and uh, it's been great to to have you on as well. Um, and just appreciate both of you guys' insight and um, yeah, just all the work that you guys are doing out there on the front lines. Um, I know. I get to stay kind of tucked in an office and I'm not out there, but um, you guys are out there fighting it every day and I really appreciate it. I echo. Well, thanks for having me on. Thank you. Thanks guys. Well, that was great. I, I, I really enjoyed both Luke and Irve being here and thought they brought a lot of value and it was so interesting to hear about, you know, Luke's take on infection prevention, all that they do. And boy, they've really had a rough road the last 18 months or so. And, really learn to appreciate what they what they do every day. I completely agree. It was fascinating talking to to Luke, not only just like all the science and everything that goes into infection prevention and his role, but also how he d- seems to do a great job of keeping in mind that, you know, patients aren't just a number. Like when he said that, um, mm-hmm. there's a real human behind that. And what we do is ultimately not about just metrics and tracking things, but about saving people's lives. And um, I really appreciated um, his his comments on that. And I really appreciated Irve's insight, um, just as someone who has had a role, obviously, that's been so important, has always been so important, but now with COVID, um, you know, just the heightened awareness around EVS and how Irve's just, and his team has, has responded to that and partnered with Luke and all the other, you know, teams at, at their hospital. Um, it was just really cool to hear, you know, everything they're doing. And man, I just couldn't appreciate more um, the work that they do on the front lines and the things that they do to serve patients. Um, and, and yeah, I'm, I'm just super grateful for everything they're doing. Yeah. Thanks again, Irvi and Luke. Really appreciate you guys joining us and bringing your expertise. Yeah. I really appreciate everyone joining us uh, for this conversation. I really hope that it was valuable and that uh, you all gained some insight today. Be sure to follow us and tune in for our next episode with another healthcare leader, wherever you listen to your podcasts. And for more tips in healthcare, follow the HHS blog at www.hhs1.com. See you next time.